0: Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website, nbbctx.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Glad you're here today. Listen, we're excited. We're going to be in week two of our series called Let Me Explain. We're trying to give answers to questions that people are asking about the faith and what we believe as uh, Christians. Hopefully, if you're wrestling with some area of the faith, we'll equip you uh, to have the answer to the questions that you are asking or maybe that you're being asked by those around you. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about the, the, the question of why we believe Jesus is the only way. Uh, why we believe that Jesus is the only way that a person can be saved and uh, uh, have eternal life. And so when we think about this, this, this idea here of why we believe as Christians that Jesus is the only way, this is a core a fundamental conviction that we have as believers. This is not something that's you know that's up for debate. We're not kind of trying to have a discussion to see if you've got some viewpoints. We've got some viewpoints. And let's come together. This is foundational for us. All right. So we're not debating here. Like we could debate on things like uh, the question. You know, what is the best university in the state of Texas? Anybody know the answer to that one? Say it. Okay. See, nobody even said the same thing. Uh, it's East Texas Baptist University. That's my. Uh, University. So, uh, here's the thing. We can debate things. Like, if I was to ask that question, we have conversations about why you believe your university is better than this person's university and and what it is. You could talk about degree plans and career options and have different things that are preferences that you discuss and say, hey, this is a good case. Listen, we're not going to do that with Jesus. We're going to just simply stand on this conviction. It's not up for debate that there is only one way for a person to be saved and it's found in Jesus. That's what we believe as Christians. Now, because we believe this, uh, this this is very polarizing in our culture. A few verses of Scripture that causes people to have pause, and really uh, the world kind of looks at Christianity through the lens of it being intolerant because of some of the verses like John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You have Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Then you have 1 John 5, 12, it says this, whoever has the Son, Jesus, has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Like, there is no middle ground with these verses of Scripture, right? And so when it comes to what we believe about Jesus being the only way, this is what causes such polarization when it comes to Jesus and Christianity in our culture. We have a culture that that celebrates the virtue of tolerance. Now, tolerance means different things to different people, but uh, this is the virtue that we kind of celebrate in our culture. And it's interesting to me because Christianity is built upon the the thought that Jesus is the only way, exclusively the only way that you can have a relationship with God, is that a, a culture that values tolerance is very intolerant, Uh, toward Christians, right? And so here's here's the thing. So you're going to have to wrestle with this in a culture. If you're going to hold to this, you're going to need to wrestle with this uh, because it brings a lot of tension in society. And so here's what I'm going to get you to do. Grab your Bibles. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. And what I want to do this morning, and this is kind of the heartbeat of the series, but I want to talk about um, what we believe in regards to Jesus. So I'm going to talk about this Jesus being the only way, and then I want to talk about why we believe it. I'm going to give you some tools in the belt of of how you can have conversations to explain the reason you believe in Jesus. And then like we did last week, I want to talk about what this means. How do we apply this and how does this change our life? And 1 Corinthians 15 is a great passage of Scripture because Paul is really going to summarize the gospel. What we're going to find here in this passage of Scripture, Paul is going to explain to us what we believe is the earliest creed of the Christian faith. The oldest creed of the Christian faith is found in this passage of Scripture that Paul is going to give. Uh, Paul, after being converted uh, in around AD 33-ish, travels to Jerusalem where he spends some significant time with Peter and James and this creed that Paul is going to explain, most historians believe that Paul would have received it somewhere within the first six years after the resurrection of Jesus. So, when Paul unpacks here in this passage of Scripture, it is, is kind of the foundation of Christianity from the very beginning. All right? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, start reading in verse number 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, Paul is, is writing this letter, and here's what he's going to do in this passage of Scripture. Paul is going to say, I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I preached. I'm going to remind you of the good news that I proclaimed. And this gospel I preached, you received. In other words, by faith, you embraced it. And then he says, and you're being saved by it. So I preached it, you received it, and now the message that you received is saving you. And so Paul is going to say, I want to remind you fundamentally of what you believe as a Christian. And then he's going to unpack this. Uh, Creed, look at what he what he says in verse number three. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, this is the most important thing that I could tell you about the Christian faith. This is what I'm going to remind you of. I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. This is the Creed. Um, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Um, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas. This is Peter. He appeared to Cephas. Uh, Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So Paul is is quoting here, we believe, the the earliest, the oldest Christian uh, creed, doctrinal statement that we have, and here is the summary. So what do we believe about Jesus? Let me give you one statement that flows from this doctrinal statement of Paul and it's simply this. What do we believe? We believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he was uh, resurrected on the third day and it is only by faith in him that we can be saved. So this is what we believe fundamentally. So if you're ever asked the question, what do Christians believe? Like what is it fundamentally that we believe? What is it that is at the core, at the root, the foundation of our faith system? Paul just explained it to us. From the very beginning, from the very birth of Christianity, this has been the core conviction that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, that He was resurrected on the third day, and it's only by faith in Him that we can be uh, saved. This is Christianity is not a message about uh, rules or rituals. Christianity is not a, a, a faith system that, that's built upon um, a system of things that you must do in order to obtain salvation. It is based upon Uh, Two thoughts. This is what Paul says. Christ died for our sins and was resurrected on the third day. So fundamentally, this is what we believe. Now, why is this important? It's important because what Paul says here when he says that Christ died for our sins and was resurrected on the third day, Paul is helping us understand that Jesus deals with the fundamental problem of humanity. The fundamental root problem of humanity is that we are broken and we are sinners. Amen? All right. You look at your neighbor next to you and say he's talking about you right? So all of us in this room, the scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, so, So we understand that's the root fundamental problem of Christianity. And Jesus goes directly to the problem. He deals with the great issue of humanity, that we have rebelled against God's law. And because of that, we have been separated from God. And now the judgment of God, which is death, rests upon us. But God in His grace and His love and His mercy has let Jesus come to be the propitiation, that He is the substitute that appeased the wrath of God on our behalf, that He died for our sins. But He didn't just die for our sins. Three days later, He resurrected so that we might have new life. So there are two massive things that Jesus accomplishes um, for us um, in His death and resurrection. First, He pays for our sin debt, which is death. So He pays for our sin debt by His death. And then he offers us new life in his resurrection. So this is what Jesus uh, presents. This is why um, we, we practice what's called believer's baptism here. Uh, anybody in the room been baptized? Raise your hand if you've been baptized. Most of you in the room have been baptized. So here, here's the thing. So what do we practice? We, we believe, the Bible teaches, that when a person will trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus for salvation, and they are saved, that then that person would go public with their faith in what's called baptism. Baptism is when you see somebody step over here and they, 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 they uh, make a statement of, of, of uh, you know, I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and they're placed under the water. Here is the picture that it's painting for us, that Christ died for our sins. And when we by faith received him, we died with Christ, that our payment, our penalty has been paid for in Christ. And when the person comes out of the water, it is the picture of the resurrection of Jesus and that we also with Christ have been raised to life. This is what baptism is. It's a, it's a declaration of a life change. We died with Christ and we've been resurrected with Christ. And fundamentally, this is the message of Christianity, which is why every follower of Jesus needs to be baptized after becoming a follower of Jesus. Jesus commands it and it's a great testimony of what happened in your heart the moment you responded by faith to Jesus. And so let me just kind of throw this out there, side note, all right? If you've never been baptized after your salvation... Um, after you've received Christ, then, then we would love for you to be baptized. We would love to help you on that journey of going public with your faith. You can take the card and see back in front of you and fill that out and drop it in the offering basket. You can come by uh, Guest uh, Central after uh, the, the the sermon, and, and and you can talk to someone. We would love to be able to celebrate uh, with you what Jesus has done through Believer's Baptism. Actually, Pastor Michael is going to talk later on in the service about a specific date for that if you're uh, interested. But, but he, this is the message of Christianity. We are sinners. Christ died for our sins and was resurrected so that we might have life. Listen, this is radically different. This is radically different from every other faith system on the planet. Like every other, When you think about the top five major religions, the top five other than Christianity, you have a list of them, uh, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, and Jehovah's Witness. Here, here's what's interesting. All of those faith systems acknowledge the fundamental root problem with humanity, that there's something broken. Now, they may, they may articulate it different, but, but all of those faith systems, in, in essence, acknowledge something is broken in the heart of man, which is why we do the things that we do, which is what drives us toward uh, the, the things of the world, which drives us toward finding some sort of means to fulfillment and satisfaction, whether that's uh, materialism or, or maybe it's turning to substance abuse or maybe it's turning to religion that fundamentally something is broken and all five major religions outside of Christianity tries to and attempts to address those issues. But here's what they have in common that differs from the gospel. All of those faith systems will tell you that it's on your shoulders to do the work needed in order for you to find some sort of satisfaction or salvation. They're going to have a list of rules. They're going to have steps you need to take. They're going to be things that you must do if you are going to be saved, That the things that you must um, uh, practice or rituals you must follow or, or commands that you must obey. And if you don't do those things, then you cannot be saved because it's up to you. But the gospel is radically different. This is why the gospel means good news. It's the good news that, listen, the, the salvation that God offers is not found in what we do for God, but rather in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Like this is the greatest news in the world. Like if you had, like in this room, if you were to come to me after the service and say, hey, listen, I, I got this issue. This issue is, is that, man, I've got this debt that I owe. Like this, this, let's say it's a mortgage. I got this debt and, man, it is so large. There's no way, there's no way I can ever repay it. If I was to sit down with you and say, okay, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a financial plan. I'm going to tell you there's 14 things that you can do, but you're looking at the size of this. You don't understand. The debt is too great. Even with your plan, there's no way I can do this. I just feel overwhelmed. If I sit down with you and gave you advice of how to manage your money better in order to take care of that debt, listen, you would not call that good news. You would call that good advice, right? And you would not leave, listen, being relieved of the burden of the debt. You would leave even with more burden because now not only you have the debt, you've got all these things that you know I'm going to try to do that even in the day, it still probably won't take care of the debt, right? So you're not going to leave, uh, leave relieved, you're going to leave feeling beat down and burdened. Here's what religion does. Religion says, you got a debt that you owe and let us give you the steps that you need to take in order to take care of that. That's not good news, It's good advice. Right? That's at best all religion can offer. But the gospel says to you, listen, hey, that debt that you have, it's been paid for in a person and his name is Jesus. And if by faith you respond to him, not only will that debt be lifted, but new life will be given. It doesn't tell you things that you must do. It tells you a person you must submit to. Listen, this is radically different from what other faith systems teach and preach. So we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was resurrected on the third day, and it is only by faith in him that we can be saved. You say, where do you get that? Well, Paul says this in verses 1 and 2. He says, I want to remind you of the... Of the gospel that I proclaim, that I preach to you, the good news. What Paul just explained, that Christ died and was resurrected. I want to remind you of this. He said, and, and this is the gospel you received and are being saved. And then he says this, if you continue in it, if you hold fast to it. What is Paul saying there? Paul is saying, is that, listen, if you abandon the truth of the gospel, if you turn to any other means of salvation other than what has been delivered to you in the gospel, listen, you will not be saved. what is Paul saying? In essence, there's only one way for a person to have their sins forgiven and have new life and be reconciled to God. And it's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any other faith system you turn to nullifies the gospel in your life. So this is what we believe. Everybody say amen. amen. Now, here's what I want to do. For the rest of our time, I want to wrestle with, with two things. Really primarily, uh, the, the first is, is going to be where we give our, our main focus, and that is, why do we believe this? And I, told, I talked to you last week, I will just use the same illustration I used last week, because um, I don't have a better one. Um, <clears throat> if, uh, if it was raining outside, and I come inside, and I tell you it's raining outside, uh, if you didn't trust my word or my testimony, you would say, well, I don't believe you. And I say, well, but I said it's raining outside. You would say, well, I still don't believe you. You can say it emphatically all you want. I don't believe your testimony about what you're saying it is, right? And so then if, but if I showed you then, no, oh, it's raining outside. Let me show you the umbrella with rain on it. Let me show you my wet clothes. Let me show you the forecast to give you evidences that what I'm saying uh, is true. Uh, then those other evidences would be pointing to the fact that my testimony is accurate. Does that make sense? And so what I want to do in this next part is what we did last week is I want to point to the rain on the umbrella. Why do we believe that Jesus is the only way? Why do we believe that he died for our sins, he was resurrected, and only by faith in him uh, that we can be saved? And the answer is simple, the resurrection. Why do we believe the gospel? Because the resurrection of Jesus is an actual event that has altered history forever. This is why. So fundamentally, listen, So let me just kind of let the cat out of the bag. This is kind of the conclusion of the sermon. I'll just go ahead and tell you on the front end of it. Um, If Jesus is not alive, Christianity is dead. I'm going to say that again. If if Jesus is not alive, Christianity is dead. But if if, if Jesus is alive, if he did resurrect from the grave, then that means that there's only salvation found in him because he's the only one that was able to defeat our greatest enemy, which is death. Amen? Amen. And so, so why do I believe Jesus is the only way? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you some evidences. I want to point to the rain on the umbrella of the resurrection to help give you some tools in your belt, some answers. Maybe to question, why do we rest everything that we believe on, um, on, on Jesus? And, and, and why is it that we would believe in the resurrection? Because here's my conviction. Here's what I think when it comes to the resurrection, even in this room. Most of you live like it's myth. Most of you live like it's just a legend. Like it's just like it's this secondary thing over here that, okay, yeah, Jesus died and I got this thing and he he resurrected from the grave and that's awesome and we celebrate that and it's amazing that he did that. But we live as if it's not a reality. And the timidity of our faith, when we talk to people about our faith, kind of reveals that we don't think that it's like a real actual event. But listen, when we come to the realization that Jesus, like not figuratively speaking, not not legend, not myth, he was dead and now he's alive. Listen, there's something that happens in us that just changes when that becomes a reality. That makes sense? So I want to help you have some foundation of why we can hold with such confidence this great news that Jesus has resurrected. So let me give you three evidences. And, man, I love this subject. I love talking about it. I love reading about it. I love studying it. And I've had a really hard time narrowing down to three evidences, all right? Like I've I've had the hardest time just kind of saying, okay, what are the three things that have I shared that that might be an encouragement to our people? Because there's like 50 of them that I could share. Uh, But I'm going to give you three, all right? Everybody say amen. Because you didn't want 50, did you? I didn't think so. All right, here's, here's, here's evidence number one I'm going to give you, uh, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Why do I believe the resurrection? Because of the empty tomb. When it comes to the empty tomb, of all the facts surrounding the resurrection, the empty tomb is, is the most undeniable uh, evidences of it. Now listen, Now the empty tomb tomb in and of itself, for those of you who love reasoning and logic, you, you have to say that the empty tomb itself does not verify a resurrection, right? But listen, it's a prerequisite for it, right? We've got to acknowledge that. While it may not in and of itself verify the, the resurrection, it's a prerequisite for it. So if, if you're proclaiming resurrection and there's no empty tomb, then you've got a dilemma, right? The, the dead body kind of spoils the whole thing. But if there's an empty tomb, then it at least gives us pause to say, okay, something happened, let's try to get to the bottom of it, right? All right so, so the empty tomb, let me give you a couple of reasons why <clears throat> there, there's so much evidence around the empty tomb. All four Gospels record... Uh, testimony we'll talk about eyewitness testimony in a minute but but all four gospels record the empty tomb the, the fact that there was a tomb that had a body in it and then on the third day there was no more body in it other places and passages of scripture point to the empty tomb as well one of the great evidences of the empty tomb is what Matthew records in Matthew 28 verses 11 through 15 we're not going to read there but but the, the Roman soldiers you know they're, they're you know Jesus they're guarding the tomb and, 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 and something miraculous happens, and the, the, the guards are confronted with the fact that this stone miraculously moves, and there's this, this radiance of Jesus, and now they don't know what to do. And they go to the religious leaders, and they say, listen, this is what happened. Like, the, the dead body we were supposed to guard ain't dead anymore. And, and so what do they do? The, the, the religious leaders say, listen, if, if this thing gets out, uh, the, the, everything the disciples are saying is going to be verified and validated. So let's just make up a story. Just tell them the disciples stole the body. Just tell people the disciples came and stole the body. We're going to get to that in a moment, how crazy that is. but, but that, that, So think about this. Not only did the disciples acknowledge that there was an empty tomb, but the Roman soldiers acknowledged there was an empty tomb, and the religious leaders acknowledged that there's an empty tomb. If you didn't acknowledge there's an empty tomb, why do you make up a story? Right? You with me? So, so he, here's another part of this. The, the first people to discover the empty tomb were women. They say, why is that such a big deal? In our culture, it wouldn't be. But in this particular culture, the testimony of a woman in the first century would not be admissible in the court. They were treated as second-class citizens, and their their, their testimony was invalid. So if you were to say, hey, um, uh, there was a murder that happened, and my wife saw it all, they would say, that's great. Anybody else see it? Because we're not taking the the eyewitness account of a a woman. Her her eyewitness account is not going to be valid for uh, court. And so this is the culture in which this is being written in, and it's interesting to me. If you were going to make up a story about an empty tomb and I resurrected Jesus, and you were going to try to spread this rumor around Jerusalem, and you're going to make up this new faith system that's going to be built upon the resurrection, when you record that lie that you've created, why would you ever in this day and time say that the first people to see the empty tomb were women? Like, It doesn't make logical sense, does it? Like if you, if you, In that day and time, if you knew the testimony of a woman was invalid and nobody would believe them, why, why would you ever say the women were first to the tomb? People would go, no, no, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Because it was true. Because it wasn't made up. It wasn't a lie. It was actually an event that happened. The tomb was empty. And so why would you include the testimony of the women? Because the women were the ones to see it. Here's another one. Uh, when it comes to the arguments against it, I love this, why, why we believe there's an empty tomb. Just think about the arguments. This is where I, I love this. Those who don't believe Christianity, most of whom you know, are, 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 are scholars who oppose Christianity, most of whom do not deny the empty tomb, and here's why. They build arguments to explain why the tomb was empty. So even skeptics of Christianity look at the evidence of the empty tomb and say, okay, the tomb was empty. One of the arguments, I love this, that's the stolen body theory. In other words, they, they thought, they, they were spreading the rumor, they're kind of piggybacking on the Roman soldier and the religious leaders that the disciples stole the body. Let me tell you why that's ludicrous, all right? If you know, if you know anything about what happened in the story, you'll know that, that the, 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 the message of Jesus, which included the resurrection, was known by a lot of people. And so and, and to keep the body from being stolen, the plan was we're going to roll a stone in front of the tomb. We're going to put a Roman seal on the tomb. We're going to put Roman soldiers, Roman Navy seals, At the tomb to guard it. Now, let me a couple of things about that you got to know. First of all, the Roman seal. If you broke a Roman seal without the permission of the Roman government, it was punishable by death. Secondly, these weren't just ordinary soldiers. These were powerful, well-trained, highly skilled soldiers of the most powerful military on the planet. And they're guarding it. Now, now think about that for a moment. You've got punishable by death if you break the seal, the most powerful uh, guardians on the, the scene uh, guarding the tomb. And then you have the disciples who all ran away when Jesus was arrested. So, so, so cowardly, so full of fear. Peter even denies knowing Jesus to a girl, like it's a schoolgirl. It's just like this little fire, and he's like, I don't even know him. So, so think about this. Think about how ludicrous it is that the disciples somehow... And, 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 you know, 24 to 48 hours after Jesus died, they they somehow get all of this courage to go, you know, what? let's go steal the body. Like Roman soldiers are there, I don't care. Let's go steal it anyway, right? Like How crazy is that? Let's break the Roman seal. You know we die for that. Who cares? Let's do it anyway, right? That's just dumb. They, that's not going to happen, Right. So so they go, and not only that, let's say they do go. Let's say find the courage. Now they've got to find a way to break the steel, move the stone without waking up soldiers who were asleep. And by the way, if Roman soldiers in this day and time were caught sleeping on the job, they were crucified upside down. So you've got a real problem here, right? The stolen body theory is crazy. And to me, the stolen body theory is so ludicrous, it only validates the reality that the tomb was empty. Here's another one. Here, here's another argument they, get, they give uh, to, 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 to against the empty tomb. The disciples went to the wrong tomb. How many of you ever driven to the cemetery and went to the wrong grave of a loved one, right? It's like, it may have happened, but let's think about this. The, the disciples named specifically the person who owned the tomb by name, Joseph of Arimathea, right? So listen, when you say the tomb belonged to him, what you're saying is, is that we know exactly who the tomb belongs to, but also where it's located. And if for somehow you went to the tomb and you went to the wrong tomb, don't you think you would go get Joseph or somebody who knows Joseph and say, can you take us to the right tomb? Or if the tomb that they went to was the wrong tomb and it was an empty tomb, the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders would have said, no, 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 you went to the wrong tomb. Hey, let's go over here and let's find the dead body of Jesus. Why didn't they do that? Because it wasn't the wrong tomb, it was just an empty one, and it's unexplainable, other than the fact that Jesus resurrected from the grave. Here, here's the second um, uh, reason, uh, our second uh, evidence uh, for uh, believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Let me, let me read you something first before I, I jump uh, ahead. I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself in my notes. Uh, Paul Mayer, when he looks at the empty tomb and all of the circumstances around it, here's what he says: All of the evidence, when if all of the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly. It is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research to conclude that Jesus' tomb was actually empty and no shred of evidence has yet been discovered that would disprove this statement. Let me tell you another guy, Michael Grant of Edinburgh University. He says if we apply the same sort of criteria that we would apply to any other ancient literary sources, uh, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. When you weigh the evidence, here's what you end up with, an empty tomb. All right, that's evidence uh, number one. Evidence number two is the eyewitness testimonies, eyewitness testimonies. I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 5 again. It says this, And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So the number of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus is overwhelming. Peter just makes a list. He, he Or rather, Paul makes a list. He says he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the disciples, and then he appeared to James, 500 other brothers, and then he appeared to me. Now think about the weight of an eyewitness in regards to a legal case. Men and women have been convicted and acquitted on the basis of one witness, Right? With Jesus' resurrection, you don't have one witness. You have, Paul says, over 500. And I love this. Paul says, listen, and by the way, most of whom are still alive. Why would Paul add that? If you don't believe my testimony, go talk to the people that saw Jesus alive. Go talk to the people that saw him resurrected uh, to life. This is overwhelming evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. When you think about the accuracy that these things are recorded in the Gospels, Historically speaking, one man said this about the gospel of Luke in the the book of Acts in regards to its historical accuracy. A guy named Sir William Ramsey says this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. In short, this author would be placed among with the very greatest of historians. In other words, the gospels record the eyewitness testimony of men and women who saw Jesus die and resurrect, right? Amen. And this, is, this guy is saying, when you look at the historical accuracy of the Gospels, just the Gospel of Luke alone, Luke should be put, it, put in the category of the highest historians of all time. So when you think about the historical accuracy, the fact that, that men and women saw Jesus and then recorded historical document verifying the testimony that they saw, and when it comes to the examination of the historical accuracy, the Bible stands against anyone who would oppose Jesus. It. And, and listen, here, here's a couple of other reasons why I believe the account of uh, the disciples. When they tell the story about Jesus' death and resurrection, there was a guy named uh, Thallus who, who, who Thallus rather, um, who, who wrote a historical document in AD52, and he talked about in his document, this is a, 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 a non-believing historian. He tells uh, the story of darkness that covered the earth during the crucifixion of Jesus. Here's another man by the name of uh, Tacitus. He, he wrote about Jesus dying by crucifixion at the hand of Pontius Pilate. Josephus, another historian, historian who lived during the life of Jesus, he talks about the Pontius Pilate had Jesus crucified. And then he reports that the disciples were telling everyone that they saw Jesus alive after his death. So here's what you have eyewitness testimonies uh, recorded historically uh, accurate by the apostles in the Gospels, and then you have secular writings who validate the writings that we have in Scripture. Are you with me? This this blows my mind. Think about the number of people who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Paul talks about 500. Um, This is where it gets kind of crazy again when it comes to the theories that try to dismiss this. like, Uh, How many of y'all have ever heard of conspiracy theories about John F. Kennedy? Anybody here? Raise your hand if that's you. All right. How many of you raise your hand? Are are those people who have the conspiracies? Right? Raise your hand if that. Okay. I'm 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 in the camp. All right. Uh, When I was in uh, junior in high school, I did a uh, paper and research on on this, and I've been intrigued and read and 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 watched documentaries and. All kinds of stuff. And here's my conviction about that, all right? Crazy theory. Oswald didn't even pull a trigger. He didn't. I promise you that. After all the reading and research, I think Lyndon Johnson uh, had him killed. All right? Anybody with me on that camp? Some of you haven't even studied it. You think it was the aliens from Area 51 that did it, but you're crazy, all right? So here's the point. The point is there's all kinds of theories in regards to certain historical events. Let me tell you the craziest theory that has ever been devised. It's called the hallucination theory. The hallucination theory is this is that you have all of these eyewitnesses who cannot be refuted in the fact that they all agree on their testimony. So here is the crazy explanation from those who want to oppose the gospel. They must have been hallucinating. Let me ask you a question. What shroom juice were they drinking, right? Like, like how in the world do 500 people share a hallucination? Psychologically, that is, listen, listen. the, the hallucination theory would have been a greater miracle than the resurrection itself, Right? You have 500 people who shared a common dream or a common hallucination. That that is crazy. But this is the kind of crazy stuff people come up with. Why? Because the resurrection is so verifiable through the eyewitness testimonies that we have to create crazy ways to explain it away. The testimony of eyewitnesses is overwhelming. Here's another reason I believe the eyewitness testimonies. is because these men and women were willing to die for what what they testified about. Did you know that 11 of the 12 disciples died a martyr's death? Not because they were Christians, but because they refused to deny the resurrection of Jesus. You say, what about the 12th one? That that is John the Apostle. John the Apostle was persecuted, and he suffered his entire life, eventually being exiled to an island where he was left for dead. Hundreds of others, of of, of the men and women who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, who preached the resurrection of Christ, they went to their grave as martyrs on the basis of the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. Now listen, I know for some of you, you're like, I- I'm a skeptic, so let me kind of push back here, and here's the argument people will make. Man, a lot of people die for things that they think are true. Right, you're, you're, you're exactly right. There are a lot of people that die for things that they think are true, that, di- things that are not true that they believe to be true, right? Amen? David Koresh. In, in Waco, Texas, a few years back, right? What he leads this cult, and and they buy in, and they 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 all give their life as martyrs for the cause, believing that this lie that they were following was true. You have men and women who will blow themselves up with bombs or fly airplanes in the buildings because they, they're so convinced that if they do this, then they'll have salvation. And so there's this lie that they've been told that they believe, and because of that, they die for that. But listen, those types of, of acts are very different than what we find in history in regards to the apostles, and here's why. When you think about men and women like with the French the da uh, the, 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 the Davidians and, and, and Islamic extremists, here's what you find there. You've got men and women who believe a lie, but they think the lie is true. And therefore, they die for it. But what you have with the disciples is very different. If these men and women died for a lie, they, lie, they died for a lie that they knew was a lie because they would have been the ones to invent it. So here's the question. How, how do you think of all the disciples who on the basis of the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus lost their life, most of them died alone. You're telling me out of all of those, not one would have broken? Not one would have said we made the whole thing up? Not one would have been pushed to the limit and out of safety and comfort would have said, don't no, no, I give up. We, we, it was a charade. Peter said this and I went along and Andrew said this. and No, but they, they didn't happen. What you find is one by one, hundreds of eyewitnesses have given their life. They were eyewitness uh, uh, testimonies to the resurrection of Jesus and gave their life on the basis that Jesus died and was raised to life. This is overwhelming to me. I love what one man said. Michael Green of Oxford University writes this. He says, The resurrection was the belief that turned heartbroken followers of a crucified rabbi into the courageous witnesses and martyrs of the early church. This was the one belief that separated the followers of Jesus from the Jews and turned them into the community of the resurrection. You could imprison them, flog them, Kill them, but you could not make them deny their convictions that on the third day he rose again. How great is that? So here's, here's what you have. This is evidence number three. Evidence number three. This is kind of piggybacking on, the, on that, that last part of evidence number two. The evidence number three is the unexplainable transformation, the extraordinary transformation. An unexplainable transformation of the apostles. These these apostles, these early believers, were were men and women. Specifically, the apostles were men who, who abandoned everything to follow Jesus. And they watched him die. And they scattered in fear. They ran for their life. The hopes were dashed. Dreams were gone. Other disciples abandoned him. In fact, here's what you had. This is what J- the, the Christianity is different from other faith systems. Jesus like had this movement that if you go back and read in the book of John, at the time of the apex of the of the movement, something happened that ran every uh, all most of the disciples away. You go back and read John chapter eleven and twelve, you'll find that. And so at the apex of Jesus's ministry, most people abandoned him, and then he is eventually, Uh, arrested and crucified. The rest of the disciples leave him and abandon him. So you don't have a great movement. What you have is a lot of cowards who flee, and it's over. Game's over. And something happens. Three days after they abandon him, what you find is a rally cry. And you find this confession that that I saw the risen Lord. And then another says, I saw him too. And another says, I want to see him. I I, want to touch him his side. I want to put my finger in nail prints and, and you see, okay, Jesus appears and you see more and more. And now what you have is these men and women who were disheartened, who were broken, who were cowards, who, 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 whose hopes were dashed. All of a sudden, miraculously, they turn into relentless and tenacious group of people who would stop at nothing to go tell people, hey, the one that we left everyone to follow, the one that was put on the cross, he's alive again. And these men and women turned the world upside down. There was a transformation that's unexplainable. Listen to what Paul says. He gives us some examples of this. Paul says in chapter 15, verse 5 again, he says, And then he, Jesus, appeared to Peter, or Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, and most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. You say, what do you mean when you say transformation? Let me just give you the three names that Peter, Paul gives here. Paul mentions three names. He says he mentions Peter. He mentions James, the brother of Jesus. And then he mentions himself. Here's the question we need to be asking. Why does he mention those three names? Why, does he, why are those three names the names that are mentioned? And here's why. I believe you could search history over and not find a more radical transformation in a single individual in such a short span of time than you find in Peter and James and Paul. And the one link that brings all three of those men together is this the resurrection of Jesus. Let's think about Peter for a moment. I talked about this earlier. You remember Peter, you know, he's the one that says, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. I'm going to go to the grave for you. All the other ones may abandon you, but I'm going to go to the grave for you. What happens? He is questioned when Jesus is arrested about his relationship with Jesus. He's like, I don't even know the guy. I don't have any clue who you're talking about. In fear, he runs away. Paul is, and Peter rather, is a coward. He is so paralyzed by his fear that the one he devoted that he would follow to the grave, he now runs from in fear. And here's what's crazy. Peter has this moment of clarity, a moment of transformation, and and, and something powerful happens in his heart. 50 days later, think about this, 50 days later, this same one that ran from the schoolgirl is standing in Jerusalem on the very streets that Jesus was walked down in order to be led to a Roman cross where he would give his life and die. This same man stood on the same streets in front of the same crowds that chanted, crucify him, crucify him. Many of the religious leaders that had the authority, that had Jesus put to death, are in the crowd. And here is what Peter does. So transformed by what he experienced in the resurrection he stands and he says listen I got news for you this man Jesus that I left everything to follow he was put on a cross by you you put him in the grave but God has risen him he is raised to life and he has transformed me and he will transform you this is the message that was proclaimed in Jerusalem by Peter how do you explain that type of transformation how do you explain that you can't Something so powerful happened in the heart of Peter that it changed his life forever. Think about James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, he was also uh, a skeptic. Some of you um, may be familiar with James's story. James, in um, uh, the Gospels, the the, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, he was a part of the group of the family that did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, they thought Jesus was crazy. There's one story where Mary and, and, and some of the kids go and they like we got to talk to Jesus. He's saying some crazy stuff and it's going to end up with him dying. Like he, we got to get him some counseling. He's gone cray cray, right? This is the this, so they had to have this family intervention. They had the family intervention and and you know the dialogue where Jesus kind of says, "Who are my brother? Who are my mothers? who? who it's those who who do what I say, right?" So there's this moment where where James is kind of outed as a skeptic. we were told that after the resurrection big brother Jesus appears to little brother James and this skeptic who thought his brother was crazy falls to his knees and confesses him as Lord and the creator of the universe let me ask you this question how many of y'all have siblings what would it take for you to Come to the belief that your sibling is God in the flesh. Right? Resurrection might do it. Right? Maybe. Scripture tells us this is skeptic. Becomes a believer on the basis of the resurrection. You know what I love about the story of James? Check this out. James is so transformed by the message. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the, and the historians tell us that there was a moment where the crowds of Christianity were growing more and more and more. Religious leaders said, We can't, we can't have this. What's going on here? So they said, We got to get James. James is the leader. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Let's get James in here. And so they talk to James, and here's what they say. Hey, listen, all these people are following Jesus, and we got to do something to stop this. Here's what we need you to do. We're going to take and place you up on this pinnacle, and we're going to have you call to the crowds and tell them to stop following Jesus. Just deny that he's Lord. Deny that he resurrected. Just put an end to all of this. And so James, do this, or we're going to kill you. And James like, okay, I'll do it. And so they take James, and they placed him in this place, and James calls the people together, this one who is the great leader in Jerusalem, and he says, hey, Everybody, this is my paraphrase Jesus is Lord and He's alive and He resurrected. And they kick James off of the platform and He doesn't kill him. And they pick up stones and they stone him to death. And while they're stoning him to death, just like his big brother, James cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How do you explain that transformation? called the resurrection. And then the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul rode to Damascus, violent hater of Christianity, opposed everything that Jesus stood for, dragging men and women out of their homes because they profess that Jesus is alive Approving of men being put to death because they were followers of Jesus. This is a guy whose heart was not just um, um, not a believer. He was opposed to everything that believers stood for. And on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Jesus shows up. And Paul's own words was, and finally, he appeared also to me. As one, and he says this, untimely born. One, I love this. The idea is one abnormally born. What is he saying there? The picture is, is that Paul was pulled out of the womb, kicking and screaming. Against his own will. He was so against Jesus, and Jesus says, I ain't having any of that. I'm saving you, and then I'm going to use you. And, and Paul, this man who was working his way up into the ranks of the, of the leadership of the Jewish people, in an instant, his heart is transformed and he becomes the greatest missionary and evangelist this world has ever known. On the basis of what? He saw the resurrected Jesus. See, here's the thing. When you come, when it comes to the resurrection, when you think about the empty tomb, when you think about the testimony of eyewitness, when you think about the radical um, 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 transformation of the apostles On the basis of one thing, Jesus was dead and now he's alive. Listen, this is why I believe Jesus is the only way. So to get to the third thought, it's this. What does this mean for us? Here's what this means for us. If Listen, if Jesus is alive, it means that he is Lord and the only hope of salvation. That's what it means. Listen, here's the thing we got to understand. If Jesus is dead, Christianity is dead. If Jesus is dead, we have no hope. We have no reason to be here. If Jesus is not alive, listen, then this is pointless. What are we doing? Let's go to the lake. It's a beautiful day outside. But if Jesus is alive, then it changes everything about us. It means that there is no way of salvation apart from Jesus. Jesus is either the way or he's not a way at all because everything hinges on the resurrection, the empty tomb, the fact that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. And here is the great news for you, that because the resurrection, is true, if you are in Christ, you also have been made alive in Him. That you have now received eternal hope. That death has been defeated. That the grave has been uh, overcome. That Christ now has resurrected in your heart. And now, listen, you have the hope of eternity because the eternal one is in you. But if Christ, listen, if you have not received that, Here's what that means for you. You are dead in your sins. You are in need of forgiveness. And you have one of two choices on the basis of the resurrection. You bow a knee in repentance. Trusting in the death of Jesus for your sins and resurrection for life. Or you deny him in rebellion. And you stay in your sins. That, that's the only, there's no middle, there's no middle ground. There's no, i I kind of in between. No, it's you're either you're a follower or you're not. And today my prayer is some of you would become followers.